Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, make sure you picked up your handout when you came in. Uh, I do have another one for this morning. Um, you came back, and that's always encouraging to whoever's teaching. So thank you for coming back. A uh, couple things to wrap up from yesterday. Um, it was interesting when I checked my emails last night, my uh, daily email from Christianity Today, which is a um, national, um, interdenominational Christian publication. Uh, one of the lead articles was about cremation in the Christian community. And the article was about, and this really does follow on what we were talking about yesterday, the cre- cremation is not the issue. It's what cre- how you look at cremation theologically and what cremation may do otherwise. Uh, the article in Christianity Today was about how as a result of cremation, people are doing less and less and less at the time of death, such as funeral rituals. Um, And what the article is about was as a result of that, grief is being exacerbated as is loneliness. You need those rituals. You need those uh, uh, things to do to to bring closure. You need the community together. You can't just, you know, if a loved one dies and you just do what they call direct disposition and have them cremated and pick up their cremains and put them on your shelf and try to go about life, life doesn't go about real well. You need some things to mark the death, uh, particularly from a Christian perspective. You need some things to mark the death. And, you know, you need somebody to bring the casseroles over. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of those rituals and traditions and customs around um, what we preachers call funeralizing. And funeralizing has become more and more simple. And there's, there's ramifications to that. Uh, as we talked about, ideas have consequences, actions have consequences. So it was an interesting article uh, in yesterday's edition, email edition of Christianity Today. Um, The other thing that I thought about, and this came out of last night, uh, someone asked a question about Europe. And, you know, I talked a little bit about how particularly crematoriums in Europe, uh, those are like funeral chapels now, and they do services in the crematorium uh, before the person goes into the um, cremator. Um, But again, to show you how actions also have consequences, one of the reasons, there's two very specific reasons um, that cremation developed quicker in Europe than here. And those two very specific reasons are these. I think it was 1906. And remember the first crematorium or the first cremator was publicly introduced at the World's Fair in 1873 in, in um, Vienna and the first crematorium in the United States, 1876, I believe. Um, But Europe kind of moved on quicker with cremation than the United States. And one of the reasons was around 1906, how many of you ever been to Westminster Abbey? Yeah. Uh, Around 1906, which was very early, Westminster Abbey had to say, if you want to inter someone in the abbey, the basilica of the church, you have to do it with ashes. You know, you got people buried all over Westminster Abbey. That was 1906. And then in 1944 in England, William Temple was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and in a lot of ways was one of the most beloved 
well-published Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. When he died, he was cremated in 1944 in England. So things like that really kind of, you know, we, there's a herd instinct among human beings. We just sort of do what others do. So ideas and actions have consequences. And it's always good to kind of develop the ability to reflect on what you're seeing, reflect on what you're hearing. Uh, so part of what we did yesterday was just to look at the topic of cremation um, through, Christian, through Christian lens, which means you don't wholesale reject it, you don't wholesale accept it. It's like all of life, you know, we, we, we actually refer to, um, as one of our spiritual gifts that the Spirit brings, we refer to one of those spiritual gifts as the gift of discernment. Uh, you should be busy every day discerning. Don't just be a herd. You know, dis- discern what you're supposed to have for dinner tonight. Put some thought into it. So that's why your worldview is important, because you're always making decisions. I think I read one time we make like 3,000 a day. We're always making decisions, making choices. So make sure that you are exercising the, the um, spiritual gift of discernment. And um, don't just, you know, completely reject something or completely accept something. Evaluate. Evaluate it, particularly through a Christian lens, if, you, if you're trying to live as a Christ follower. Um, I referenced a scripture text. I'm still sort of summarizing um, from yesterday and beyond. I, I mentioned the word stronghold yesterday. Let me show you the text. Uh, take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, we, we talked a little bit quickly yesterday about Romans 12, 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, where Paul says that, um, you know, if we don't want to be conformed to this world, we have to uh, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we need to be constantly renewing our mind. Uh, the Bible refers to that as taking on the mind of Christ. Some of us just took on our grandmother's mind or our grandfather's mind. or I took on a Gastonia mindset when I was growing up. And that's not all wrong. But what we're after is take on the mind of Christ. Um, so one of the ways we renew our minds is by paying attention to what's, what we've programmed there. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was in Greece, what we call Greece. Um, Corinth was a Roman colony in Greece. So here Paul was trying to take a uh, gospel based on a Jewish Messiah to a culture that was Greco-Roman. They had very different sexual morality. They were a culture that embraced all sorts of sexual expressions. We know that in the Greek world. Um, they were a culture that uh, embraced abortion, by the way. Um, it, was, it was well known. The, one of the oldest documents of the Christian faith outside the Bible, and it actually may be older than a couple of the books of the New Testament, is the Didache. In the Didache, which was written around the end of the first century, in the 90s, in the Didache it says, reject abortion. Abortion was well known in the ancient world. It was, it was, it was widely accepted in the Greco-Roman world for one major reason. You females were problematic on so many levels. You cost us. We had to pay to get you married. You didn't provide. 
So abortion in the Greco-Roman world even went to the extent of um, leaving female infants out exposed to die. So the Greco-Roman world accepted that. The Greco-Roman world accepted the whole... uh, Emperor Hadrian. um, uh, Emperor Hadrian, who was a great emperor, Roman emperor in several ways, uh, in the 3rd century. Emperor Hadrian was famous for... um, How can I say this? We're all adults here. He was famous for his boy toy, Antinous. Uh, There's statues all over um, the Greco-Roman world from antiquity of Hadrian and Antinous. The Greco-Roman world was, I say all that to say, very different from Jewish morality. So when Paul is trying to take the gospel of a Jewish Messiah based on Jewish background to the Greco-Roman world, he had a task ahead of him. There were, he, he, was taking, he was taking a gospel to a world that was filled with different gods, filled with different moralities, filled with different ways of thinking, uh, remember in the book of Acts when he goes to Athens, he talks about how many gods they have. He talks about how they love their philosophical debate. In a lot of ways, uh, we are in this culture now, since Christendom has passed, we're, we're, we're sort of reliving the book of Acts again, which is why I'm going to teach, teach the book of Acts starting in the fall. We're reliving the book of Acts. We're being sent to a world very different from 200 years ago. Uh, it's very much like the book of Acts, different world that Paul went to. So when Paul um, is writing to the church at Corinth, because the problem with the Corinthians, as you know, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they came to Christ. Paul established the church there. But to use modern terminology, those new Christians coming out of the Greco-Roman world, they didn't have a delete button on them. And they brought all their baggage the Greco-Roman baggage. And that's why you read like in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on. Paul has to tell them, tell them in 1 Corinthians that incest is a bad idea. Because he's coming from a Jewish perspective. They aren't. When the Jews talked about sexual immorality, they knew what they meant. It was very different in the Greco-Roman world. So when Paul was taking the gospel around the Greco-Roman world, around the Mediterranean, um, it was... Quite a challenge. Look at chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. Uh, Look at verse 3. We'll start there. This is going back to all I said about a Christian worldview. You know, if you have a hedonistic worldview, if you have a materialistic worldview, if you have a Marxist worldview, if you have a Hollywood worldview, if you have a Madison Avenue worldview, your worldview are your glasses through which you see reality and how you evaluate. Well, Paul's trying to get these Greco-Roman Corinthians to adopt a Christian worldview, which is basically a Jewish worldview. And that's why he has to say something like in chapter 10, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds, what Paul was referencing there, are um, ingrained thought patterns that you just unreflectively have harbored away up there that's controlling your life. Um, My father used to call them notions. You get some notions in your head, you won't let go of them. 
And they may be good. They may be ridiculous. Those are strongholds. So Paul's saying to these Corinthian Christians, for the weapons of our warfare, spiritual warfare, uh, are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Part of what we need to do to renew our mind, take on the mind of Christ, is destroy strongholds. Um, you know, if you're letting the world define you, if you're letting your past define you, if you're letting the people around you define you, as opposed to letting God and the work of Jesus Christ define you, you need to work on those strongholds. Uh, anyway, so uh, Paul's saying to these Corinthian Christians, you know, the weapons that we have, the spiritual weapons that we have, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. There's a lot of lofty opinions around. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's your task. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. You can't just let Jesus be Lord of your religious life. You can't have a religious department in your life. You know, he's either Lord of all, as we learned back in the 1970s. He's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You can't give them, you know, your religious department. You've got to give them your financial department, your entertainment department, your sexuality department, your political department. Those, 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 that's what it means take, think, taking every thought captive. And, you know, believe it or not, now I, I know you've got some people in your life that don't believe this, but because they have the thought doesn't mean they can say it. You know, because they have the thought doesn't mean it's right. Even if their grandma told them that, it may or may be right, it may be wrong. Um, you know, some people, as soon as it hits their brain, here it comes out of their mouth. And they don't take any thoughts captive um, to anything. But we're told to take our thoughts captive to Christ. So that's all about world. Okay. Um, so yesterday, we just, it's a fun exercise to look at something like cremation. And say, is it right or is it wrong? And our answer was yes. And you look at it and you evaluate it. And, you know, there's some things that are that fit the Christian worldview and there's some things that don't. Anyway, so today we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. And we're talking about what most of us would say is a core Christian doctrine. You know, the virgin birth. Um, now, most of you probably know that the virgin birth has um, always been a rather controversial topic. Uh, since the earliest days of Christianity, it's been a controversial topic. In the Gospel of John, you may have a memory that the Pharisees, at one point, they're arguing against Jesus, and they refer to him, or they allude to him rather strongly as being illegitimate. Remember that? Read the book and read it closely. Uh, they referred to him as being illegitimate. Why would they do that? Well, they... They know that Mary got pregnant and Joseph said he didn't have anything to do with it. So what would be the normal response to that? Uh, in the earliest days of Christianity, it was uh, a, a, a fairly common pagan attack on the Christian faith to say that Mary was raped by a Roman soldier named Pantera. The reason for that is the Greek word for virgin is parthenos. So um, the, that kind of got twisted, used, whatever, manipulated. 
there was this common thing that went around, and it's in pagan literature. Uh, uh, Kelsus is a famous pagan who talks about it. That uh, what really happened was you know, virgin birth. Who can accept that? Was she was raped by a Roman soldier there in Nazareth, and Joseph just took her in to save her all of the um, humiliation and such. So from day one, and this is going to have some influence in a minute on what we talk about. From day one, the virgin birth has been a hard sale. Has been a hard sale. Uh, most of us know, particularly those of us in creedal churches where we have stuff like the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's, I mean the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, we profess born of the Virgin Mary. So we sort of know it's for doctrine. Uh, just a recent study for what studies are worth. Some of you may love studies. Some of you may hate studies. Some of you may believe everything any study says. Some of you may question studies, but which is probably what you should do. But a recent study said that in this culture, um, 30% of the culture that's connected to the Christian faith does not accept virgin birth. Um, there's long been studies um, across the pond and here that have said that among mainline clergy, about 25% do not accept virgin birth. Um, which is why some people say when you say the creed, don't say, I believe in et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because some people have a hard time saying that. But if you say, we believe, you know, they'll acknowledge it's the faith of the church. They'll acknowledge we have weird faiths. We have some weird doctrines. But individuals then can opt out. But that's why the creeds were written with the Latin word credo to begin, I believe. So, you know, it's not, I can't just say we believe and I'm still considering but the Christian faith has basically said, I believe the individual who believes in virgin birth. Well, we're going to look at the virgin birth, and we're going to look at some of uh, where it comes from. We're going to look at it theologically, and then we're going to look at some of the objections to it. And it's only been in recent years, and we'll talk about this. It's only been in recent years that one of the major objections that gets thrown at us, sometimes from within the Christian community, about the virgin birth is it is anti-female. And we'll, we'll get there. That's where we'll end up this morning, anti-female. Um, but there's a lot of reasons why people have rejected the virgin birth. Anyway, uh, with that being said, let's look at a couple texts. Because, of course, one of those objections is it only occurs in Matthew and Luke. That's two times. Um, it may occur in Mark. When Mark refers to Jesus as the son of Mary... It says no more. He may be referring to the virgin birth. But it's obvious in Matthew and Luke. It's obvious in Matthew and Luke. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 18. The text is on your sheet. Um, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So it's presented as sort of historical fact. It took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, Betrothal had the bearing of marriage in the ancient world. It was a much, much stronger than our engagement. Um, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Mary, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Because he just knows she's pregnant. And he doesn't want because she could be stoned to death for committing adultery. 
Betrothal is more binding than engagement. It's almost binding as marriage. According to the Jewish law, should be, she could be stoned to death for adultery. But Joseph, being a just, and a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. Uh, divorce, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we talk about marriage. Divorce is an accepted thing in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. So he decides to divorce her quietly. Because, of course, he's like you and I. He's using his common sense when Mary says, I'm pregnant, but there's no other man. He's using his common sense here. So he, he's a good man. He doesn't want to put her to shame. He certainly doesn't want to have her stoned to death. So he decides to, to um, divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so um, you know some people look at that, particularly within the church today, um, trying to accommodate contemporary culture, and they say, well, all births are from the Holy Spirit. And I, I'll grant you, all births are miraculous. Uh, have you heard I've had my first grandchild? <laughs> all births are miraculous. My, my new granddaughter is the best ever born, and I get another one in about two weeks. All births are miraculous, but does that mean, is, is that what the scripture's talking about here? You know, um, and we'll talk a little bit about science in a few moments, but, you know, please don't, please don't, please don't participate in what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery says, you know, we are so intelligent, and all the people who have gone before us in history were so ignorant. They knew where babies came from in the ancient world. They knew how babies were made. You know, Joseph knew, they all knew this. So uh, this is obviously a unique case. This is obviously a unique case. This is out of the norm. It doesn't fit common sense. It doesn't, it's not the way Joseph sees babies uh, coming normally. So when you can't just say, well, all babies are miraculous of the Holy Spirit. This is a unique thing with the Holy Spirit here. It's what the Christian community uh, concluded because it's obviously this in the text. Anyway, verse 22, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is going to tell you why this is happening. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew has like 60 quotations from the Hebrew Bible. Make sure you're reading the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The Gospel of Matthew has like 60 quotations from the Hebrew Bible. Um, and here, the Gospel of Matthew is um, referencing a famous verse out of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Now, he's quoting, because your New Testament's written in Greek. By the time of Jesus, Greek was very much the common language, kind of like English is in the world today. Um, Jesus would have been somewhat trilingual. He spoke Aramaic, uh, which was a form of Hebrew. He would have used Hebrew in worship, but he would have known enough Greek to have participated in culture, probably when he has his conversation with Pontius Pilate. They're doing it in Greek. I doubt he knows any Latin. I doubt Jesus knows Latin. But Pontius Pilate would use some Greeks, so and they're trilingual. So the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, by the time of Jesus, has already been in Greek translation for 250 years. 
So he's quoting, Matthew's quoting, uh, the, the Greek Septuagint version of Matthew, of, of Isaiah 7:14, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some of you are older than I am. You may remember around the year 1954 when the Revised Standard Version came out, there were book burnings of the Revised Standard Version because when people turned back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it didn't say virgin. It said young maid or young woman. Here it says virgin. Both are right. In the Hebrew, the word is alma, which means a young woman. That's what it says in Isaiah, young woman. Now, you know, some people found that and said, ah, oh, there's my loophole to quit believing in the virgin birth. Well, not quite. Uh, Alma, even though it means young woman in the Hebrew, it's clear in the Hebrew Bible, that means a young woman who is a virgin. So, when, I, when the Hebrew got translated into um, Greek, the word used here, behold, the virgin... The virgin, the word virgin here is Parthenos. Any of you ever been to the Parthenon? It's a virgin goddess up there on the hill, or what used to be up there on the hill. Parthenos. So in the, in the Greek, it is virgin. It is virgin. And again, don't just look at Matthew and say, well, bless his heart. He doesn't know any better. He knows what he's doing here. The Greek version he agrees with. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. This child that the virgin has conceived is God with us. Because to say this, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit means this child was conceived by God. By the way, in language is important, but I'm not going to fight this battle. We, we do know it's not really virgin birth. It's virgin, virginal conception. He was born the same way. All the other babies, bows have been born. I'm, the cord had to be cut and all this other kind of stuff. But so it's a virgin birth. We know that. But it's a virginal conception is what's going on here. Um, we'll say some more about that, particularly in the Greco-Roman world. Anyway, so they should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. You know what that means. Until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So there's the virgin birth, obviously, in Matthew. Um, if it was in there one time, that'd be enough. But it's, go to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 1. Virgin birth is in Luke chapter 1. You look at virgin birth in Luke. In chapter 1, um, you remember the story. Chapter 1, verse 26 and following. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee in Nazareth. This is the sixth month of um, Elizabeth's pregnancy. Uh, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And because, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That Hail Mary comes from this text. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. I'd be greatly troubled at the angel myself showing up. 
but she was kind of greatly favored. She was, she was, she was troubled at the angel saying, no favored one. Uh, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. That's the typical response to an angelic being. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So this is this is Son of God who's going to rule. Give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He doesn't just live 33 years. Forever. And of his kingdom there, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how Shall, how would this be since I'm a virgin? Again, common sense. Logical question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Uh, I hope that's part of your worldview. Nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Look at the submission there. That submission to God. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And the angel departed from her. So obviously, for Matthew, obviously for Luke, it's a virgin birth. Maybe when Mark says, Son of Mary, not Son of Mary and Joseph, he's, in, he's alluding to a virgin birth. Perhaps even Paul in Galatians, when Paul says he was born of woman, but doesn't say of man, woman and man, maybe he's alluding to the virgin birth. But it's obviously in here two times. Okay, let's let's talk about virgin birth and Christian theology. Is this a um, is this a non-essential doctrine? Is this a castaway doctrine? Is this one that you can pick and choose, and you may choose not to do this? Um, just some comments. First, I'll talk about the criterion of embarrassment, which I, I bet you didn't wake up this morning thinking about the criterion of embarrassment. The, the historian in me knows a little bit about the criterion of embarrassment. Let me tell you what the criterion of embarrassment is. If I were creating something, let's say I was going to create a movement, create a new religion, create it out of whole cloth, the last thing I want to do is to create something that's going to be an embarrassment. Create something that's going to make life hard for me. So when historians look at things, we look at things like this and say, you know, from day one, this virgin birth thing has been hard for us. Yeah, if God didn't do it, we wouldn't have made it up. Because it's been an issue since day one. That's the criterion of embarrassment. You can just use that historically for whatever. You know, whenever there's something there in the record that uh, the person writing the record would probably prefer it's not there, it's probably historical. That's the criterion of embarrassment. It's in all the creeds. You know, that's, again, it's essential. Um, one of the reasons it's essential for us is connected not just to gynecology, it's connected to Christology. Christ is also affirmed in the New Testament to be sinless. And the Bible... The Bible sees the fact, part of the human condition, we, we have a human illness that 
we have a human congenital illness that we pass on to each other. It's called human sinfulness. That's why I baptize your babies. Uh, we're born in need of redemption. We're born in need of Christ, and we're so grateful that that need's already taken care of before my little Molly showed up two weeks ago. Jesus already taken care of her need. Jesus, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So um, uh, part of the virgin birth is part of the theology of the sinlessness of Jesus because um, he, he's not inheriting the genital de- congenital defect that belongs to all of us humans, uh, compete, just pure humans. Um, so that's why, again, it's not just gynecology, it's Christology. A lot of what we f- debate over in the Christian church is at some level on Christology, who Jesus is. And the only, re- only, w- only way we know who Jesus is is from this book. And if you just, if you sit in judgment on this book instead of this book sitting in judgment on you, well, yeah, you made it do away with Christology. You can make Jesus to be whoever you want Jesus to be. Well, another good plug for C.S. Lewis. You've heard his most famous argument. You know, there's no one of the most ludicrous, crazy things you could ever say is that Jesus was just a great man and a great teacher. People try to say that throughout history. C.S. Lewis says that's, and this is an Oxford scholarship coming out. That's crazy. Because this man that you're calling just a great teacher walked around saying he was God. Walked around doing things that only God has the right to do. You know, I might be able to forgive your sin against me, but I can't forgive your sin against Bonnie. What's the right I have to do that? Jesus did that all the time. He walked around forgiving sin. We we have records of him controlling nature. So, you know, to say he was a good man and great teacher, but yeah, he just had this that, that peculiar thing about thinking he was God. Well, you know, if you said I'm a great teacher, but I just all of a sudden kind of lapse into this thing in a few moments telling you that I'm God, you need to question everything I've told you. So, yeah, I'm not a good man. That's why C.S. Lewis says either he's a liar, he's not, he, he knows he's not God, or he's a lunatic. You know, you need to put him away somewhere. There's a lot of people who have been put away who think they're God. Or he's who he says he is. Those are all three options you have. You can't, you, can't, you can't make up a Jesus of your own creation. And the only way we can create a Jesus um, is the one of the Bible. Either the Bible sits in judgment on you or you sit in judgment on the Bible. We have a lot of people even inside the Christian church now who want to sit in judgment on the Bible. Uh, and that's a new place for the Christian community, by the way. There have always been some people who have done that, but it's always been a very, very fringe movement. Anyway, so this virgin birth thing is not just gynecological. It's, it's, it's more than gynecological. It's Christological. Let me say a word about Marian development because people find this interesting. All Christians accept virgin birth doctrinally. They, they recite the creeds. Even if they say we believe, they have to acknowledge that's the faith of the Christian church, uh, virgin birth. Now, you know, what happened after the New Testament era, people started, um, they continued to talk about Mary. They continued to write about Mary. Um, they continued to preach about Mary. So in the history of the church, some other doctrines popped up. Um, and if you're Roman Catholic, uh, you have, we, share, we share all of our doctrines, but you have some others out there, particularly with Mary. Uh, the, the feast, the Immaculate Conception. It was only when I went to Catholic college and got December the 8th off 
from class for the feast day of the Immaculate Conception that I realize for them the Immaculate Conception is not the Immaculate Conception of Jesus. It's the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Because they believe Mary was sinless too. And that's why Jesus, that's why she was chosen. She was sinless too. That's a doctrine of Immaculate Conception, uh, which the Roman Catholics hold uh, and the Greek Orthodox hold, which is a whole bunch of the Christian community. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church also, along with um, the Greek Orthodox Church, and by the way, along with Mr. Wesley, held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. She remained a virgin. Now, what's problematic about that is in the New Testament, you have brothers and sisters referenced. Again, you've read the book. I hope you read it closely. Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 6. There's brothers and sisters referenced. Um, now, if you're Roman Catholic, they're cousins. If you're Greek Orthodox, they are children of Joseph by previous marriage. Um, Protestants, we're free to say, well, Jesus was virginally conceived. But Mary went on to have other kids. There's nothing to prevent us from the Bible saying she had other kids. And the Bible actually even refers to Jesus as firstborn. Now, when we read firstborn, uh, we know that means predominant. But we also think it probably means there's a second born and a third born and a fourth born or whatever. So um, we don't have to hold a perpetual virginity. The doctrine of perpetual virginity, and this is going to get at where we're going to end up in a little bit. The doctrine of perpetual virginity probably probably arose, uh, kind of well, it did arise during the early Middle Ages, later Middle Ages, because the church kind of went off the rails a little bit during that period um, in some ways. And one of the ways the church went off the rails was thinking that um, virginity was a higher state than marriage and procreation. And where do you see the best residual um, example of that in the Christian community today? Roman Catholic clergy can't marry. They're to be celibate and chaste. Now today they would tell you, since Vatican II, they, they are celibate and chaste so that they can more fully devote themselves to the life of the Christian community. But historically, they would acknowledge the reason monks and nuns and priests were all celibate and chaste is they were holier than the rest of us. That virginity is a higher standard than marriage and procreation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not say that now because we all know that you may be called to singleness. You may be called to marriage. We're going to end up on uh, Thursday talking about marriage uh, and a Christian concept of marriage. But, um, you know, I, I remember when I was being trained by Roman Catholics, uh, my first theology professor, Father Christopher Kirschgesner, was a great, great guy. He was a post-Vatican II priest. He had just graduated from seminary and graduate school when he was my professor. So he was only about six years older than I was. And I, I learned so much from Father Christopher. I love when I go back to the monastery now. He and I both have gray hair. But I love so much from Father Christopher. I learned so much from Father Christopher. Uh, one of the things I remember is all the girls at college thought he was way too good looking to be a priest. I thought it was such a waste. But we were all young back then. Um, but one of the, and he was post-Vatican too, which made him in those days particularly a liberal priest as opposed to some of the priests that were running around who 
this hadn't warmed up to Vatican II reforms yet. And I'll never forget when I took a course on uh, the history of human sexuality from within the Christian community. When we studied the Middle Ages, when we studied the Middle Ages and the um, legacy of St. Augustine, who was our biggest theologian in the early Middle Ages, and we owe so much to St. Augustine. St. Augustine was brilliant in so many ways, but he had his bad moments. You need to always evaluate. Um, one time, by the way, this is an aside, he, he, St. Augustine said, when we get to heaven, and he wrote volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of stuff. Great. He was the greatest theologian between Jesus and the Reformation. Um, almost all of us acknowledge that. But he, he wrote so much. He did a few weird things. And one of the weird things he did was he said that when you die and go to heaven and in the resurrection of the body and the life to come, you're going to always be age 33. Why did he say that? Jesus died at age 33. So I, I did a disciple group, disciple one group. By the, one. by the way, we weren't offered a disciple one Bible study this fall. If you've never taken disciple one, you've really cheated yourself out of something. But we'll be offering disciple one Bible study this fall. But I did. I led a disciple one Bible study one time, and um, for our final meeting and our dinner. We had every, Tammy and I were the two youngest ones in the room. Everybody else were in retirement. We had everybody bring pictures of themselves at age 33 so that we could get to know what we looked at at 38. So we could recognize each other in heaven. But anyway, so Augustine even, all of us have some strange ideas that, you know, we don't, not always at our best moments. Augustine always, but also, Augustine had a huge, huge, huge influence on views of human sexuality during the Middle Ages. Father Christopher, and some of the other priests at that would not have done this, Father Christopher sort of summarized the theology of Augustine concerning human sexuality and, and what the church, the, and we were all Catholics, by the way, until the 16th century, right? Shake your head, yes. Yeah, we were all. Um, so this is all our history. Um, Augustine's summary, Augustine's teaching of human sexuality, which all of us bought for about a thousand years, Father Christopher summarized it this way. If you've got to have sex, go ahead and have sex, but for God's sake, don't enjoy it. <laughs> and that kind of became a Christian thing. Kind of became a Christian thing. And that's where celibacy and chastity was up here, marriage and procreation down here. We all, including Roman Catholics. Um, that's why in the Greek Orthodox Church, you can be married unless you're a bishop. You can't be married. Um, in Roman Catholic Church, you can be married as a deacon, ordained deacon, but if your wife dies, you can't get another one. So, you know, we, we Christians have worked on this, which is better, virginity or not, celibacy or not. We, we're now pretty much in the universe, because the Bible is, because again, the Jewish faith is, if you don't know, the Jewish faith is very much into marriage and having children. You know, region, this is going to get to our marriage on Thursday. So, you know, it's weird the Christian community ever got to the point where in any way we denigrated marriage and having children. But we did that with celibate priests. Anyway, anyway. So um, we don't have to believe Mary was perpetually a virgin. The Middle Ages probably did. The Roman Catholics still did. John Wesley did. And as a result of her having no sin, the Vatican said... Uh, in 1954, 
uh, named it as doctrine. And the Vatican can only name something as doctrine when it's been held forever in the, in the, among the faithful. And, uh, you know, they did name as doctrine in 1954 uh, something that Catholics have been believing for centuries, the assumption of Mary. We die and decay because of our sin. So if you don't have sin, you don't die and decay. If you don't have sin, you can just... Assumption means ascension. But you, she can't ascend like Jesus, so she's assumed into heaven. Anyway, I just offer you all that at no extra charge. Um, um, people love... You know, but I'll summarize it this way. My Roman Catholic friends, and I have many of them, my Roman Catholic friends, and they, a lot of them agree with what I'm getting ready to say. My Roman Catholic friends probably make too much of Mary... You Protestants make too little. Mary is definitely the greatest disciple of Jesus in the Bible. So pay attention to her. That's why the hymnal in the pew in front of you, when we, I got to stop calling it new because it came out in 1989, but when the new hymnal that came out in 1989 came out, there's hymns in there about Mary because we tried to correct that. Yeah, Catholics probably make too much. We make too little. Anyway, all that other Marian theological development there, I just offer you a extra charge. But what's universal in the Christian church is virgin birth of Mary. The virgin Mary was definitely a virgin when Jesus was born. Now, whether or not she remained a virgin, we can debate that. But we, we all universally accept the virgin birth. And we all universally accept the church holds its doctrine of virgin birth. So what's the problem with the virgin birth? Um, so I, I've given you five that have been uh, common. I heard all these in seminary. I've, I've got colleagues that hold to some of these that wouldn't tell you that on a Sunday morning from a pulpit. By the way, I firmly believe in the virgin birth myself. By the way, I hope you understand. The churches that grow throughout history, the churches that are growing today, are the churches that hold tenaciously to Christian doctrine, particularly the supernatural elements of Christian doctrine. You know, where I see some people in this culture get confused is if it's a non-denominational church that does contemporary worship and is growing, I promise you their traditional theology. You know, these not these non-denominational churches that are very Contemporary, and that's a weird word to call it, but you know what I mean by that. These, these uh, non-denominational churches that have very contemporary worship, they're very traditional. That's why they're growing. Um, churches that grow throughout history are those that hold tenaciously to Christian theology, are those that resist the culture's desire for them to accommodate. Um, but there's always, that's why Paul says, don't be conform to this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The culture around us always wants us to accommodate, to accommodate, such as saying, virgins don't have babies. But just as an aside there, because um, I do have colleagues, not in this church, but in my in this denomination, definitely. But uh, it's been that way for decades. I've got colleagues, and I've heard all their arguments as to why they either don't believe the virgin birth or they see it as an inconsequential doctrine, even though it's in all the creeds. Anyway, so um, here's some of the stuff, because this may not be your world. Um, here's some of the reasons why the virgin birth gets attacked, and it has been attacked throughout history. Well, of course, it's scientifically impossible. Well, so is resurrection. 
So is atonement. So is walking on water. So is feeding the 5,000. If you have a worldview that has no room for the miraculous and the supernatural, you might as well just quit trying to be Christian. Now, it's happening all over the West right now. You've got people who want to be Christian. They like some things about us. They think Jesus was a great teacher, good moral philosopher. But all that supernatural stuff is weird. You know what the Jefferson Bible is, don't you? What do they teach in these schools these days? The Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson, like a lot of our founding fathers, was because the Enlightenment, I usually kind of use the year of 1750, but the 18th century is the Enlightenment. Um, and, and our founding fathers are very much part of the Enlightenment, which means they believed in God. George Washington called it, usually referred to God as Providence with a capital P. They were not historic Christians by and large. Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament and literally took a pair of scissors and cut out all the supernatural stuff. That's Jefferson Bible. You can Google it, order your copy from... Um, Amazon, because um, he thought he was just modernizing the Bible, making it acceptable to the modern world. He, he thought he was helping us by creating a Christianity that the world could accept or embrace. He probably thought, because it still happens, he probably thought he was helping Christianity not to fade away, you know, as it gets destroyed by modernity and science and everything that says, you know, virgins don't have babies. Well, he went through and, and, and you know, and you look, at the, get your copy of the Jefferson Bible. When you chop out all the supernatural, there's not a lot left in the Gospels. Um, so, you know, C.S. Lewis helped me on that. And I've already mentioned this. I have great, great, great esteem for science. But C.S. Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man. Um, he lectured, actually, at Durham University in England. Uh, it became a book called The Abolition of Man. It came out in 43, 44. In that book and in other places, he said, we appreciate science, but don't turn it into scientism. Don't make it into an idol towards the center of your life. Um, yeah, I like my flush toilets and running water, and I, love, I like penicillin and all that stuff. But don't worship at the, at the altar of science. We can take anything and turn it into an ism when we make it our idol. Well, to say, even to say it is scientifically impossible, you've, that, that your a priori, because I hope you've taken logic, your a priori assumption is supernatural, miraculous things don't happen. I.e., if it's not scientific, it doesn't happen. That may be your worldview. That was the worldview that the Enlightenment gave us. That's the worldview of modernity. Um, it's changing a little bit in our era because, again, I've mentioned that for postmoderns, spirituality is kind of on the upsurge. But you need to be careful of spirit. There's all types of spiritualities. The devil has a spirituality. Um, so scientism is not quite as, as, as significant as it was even in, in um, uh, C.S. Lewis's day. But it's still there where we will bow at the altar of science. If science tells us, we, we have to accept it. We can't question it. Well, so if you say it's scientifically impossible, again, C.S. Lewis is one of his hardest works is a book entitled Miracles, where he just, in a very academic, philosophical way, makes the case that you can be a rational human being and still believe in the miraculous, still believe in the supernatural. Yeah, if you try to get rid of the supernatural, I don't know what you're going to do with Christianity. 
You know, we got demons, we got angels, we got the Holy Spirit, we got unholy spirits. I mean, we are a supernatural faith, and it's around the world in those places where Christians still embrace the supernatural and Christianity is growing. In the West, you got people trying to embrace Christianity um, with an a priori assumption that supernatural is not real. So, yeah, it's scientifically impossible. That comes out of the Enlightenment. That's an old argument. Other ancient religions had stories about gods and women mating. Well, they sure did. A lot of Greco-Roman mythologies have stories about gods and women mating, producing offspring. Well, there's two answers to that one. Uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, said maybe all of those were, in a sense, pointing toward the truth of the Christian faith, where it does really happen. Uh, but also, I, I, we're all quick to point out, and all those mythologies, yeah, Zeus comes down and has intercourse with somebody and a child's created. Notice Matthew and Luke. The Holy Spirit overshadows her. It's none of that vulgar, a God showing up. You know, the, one of the reasons that Christianity sort of grew in the Greco-Roman world was among Jews and Christians, our God is a very decent person. You probably watched enough of those cheesy old 1950s movies about the Greeks and the Romans to know their gods weren't even good people. They would toy with you, they would abuse you, they would fight among themselves. And you know, yeah. So what, what we're talking about in the Jewish Christian tradition is very different from Zeus coming down from Olympus and raping somebody. So it's very different on both those levels. Um, number three, it's only mentioned twice in the Bible. That's enough for me. That's enough for the Christian community. Unless you just made up the assumption there's no supernatural. Mentioned two twice. And it, it's not even just two verses. They're, those are two extended passages. And that's why the creeds affirm um, the virgin birth. Now, in, when I was in seminary, I had colleagues. This is an old thing. If you you know they would joke about if if, if a board of ministry um, were to um, um, investigate their convictions concerning the virgin birth, the old joke was I'm going to say I stand with the apostle Paul. Well, okay, apostle Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth except maybe where he says she was he was born a woman. That may be an illusion, but most people haven't seen that one. But, yeah, basically Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth. But remember what I said yesterday about arguments from silence? You know, when somebody doesn't mention something, that, that, that doesn't mean what people sometimes think that means. That doesn't mean he didn't believe in it. It, didn't, it, doesn't, mean it, doesn't, it doesn't mean he didn't know about it. It, mean, it could mean it's so obvious he doesn't have to tell us about it. Um, so, yeah, Paul doesn't mention it. Um, it's not in the Gospel of John. But in the Gospel of John, you do have the Pharisees going after Jesus, saying he's illegitimate. So it may be there. But by the time the Gospel of John's written, it may be old news. It was so common sense, they didn't have to say it. Mark didn't have to say it. Paul doesn't have to say it. Peter doesn't have to. Anyway, so yeah, it's mentioned only twice. That's enough. Paul doesn't mention it. We'll be beware arguments from silence. But here's the modern one is where I want to finish. Because this is only in the last two generations. Now, I know 
you know, I've got my academic degrees. God has been so good to me. I, I have a degree from a Catholic institution, a degree from a mainline Protestant institution, a degree from an evangelical institution, and then I got a degree from UNC Charlotte, so I guess pagan and secular. <laughs> I, I run the gamut. So I've, 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 hang, I've hung out with all types. And um, it was particularly when I was at UNC Charlotte getting a master's in religious studies, I was introduced to womanist theology. I bet, you don't, I bet you've never read womanist theology. You're welcome to go Google it. Don't spend much time reading it. Womanist theology. It's a radical, radical feminist theology. Well, um, and they have their heroes, and, and, and they have made more progress in the last 30 years than I would have imagined that they have. But among them, among their writings, and I've given you one of the books that popularized it uh, there, if you want to follow this train of thought. The book titled Born of Woman, A Bishop Rethinks the Virgin Birth and the Treatment of Women by a Male-Dominated Church. Uh, so that kind of tells you what the opinion of Bishop John Shelby Spong. And I know, um, uh, I know Quentin is another Methodist preacher in the room knows John Shelby Spong. He, he's kind of old news now. I think he's still alive, isn't he? Uh, he's old news now. Back in the 90s, early 2000s, he was the maverick, radical bishop. No, even, nobody in the Episcopal Church would make him a bishop. Uh, he actually comes from North Carolina. He served in Charlotte, but then he served in, in Virginia. Finally, he found a diocese who would make him a bishop. The Diocese of Newark, Newark, New Jersey, made him a bishop. And then he became famous. He wrote all these books attacking the Christian faith, everything that was core convictions. And I read, I read a lot of them. They are fascinating. They're basically all old arguments regurgitated, and that's why he, he has regurgitated them for a popular audience, and he made a lot of money. I had lunch one time, dinner one time, with his brother, who was so normal, who told me that his brother, the famous Bishop John Shelby Spahn, was addicted to controversy. And John Shelby Spahn, to introduce you to him a little bit further. Yeah, you can tell I don't like John Shelby Spock, I guess. Um, his biography, autobiography, which I've read. I almost would encourage it. You can get it cheap these days. Um, his biography, he entitled it, Here I Stand. What's that an allusion to? What's that a, who's that a quotation from? Martin Luther. Yeah, on so many levels, I don't like Bishop John Shelby Spock. And until recent years, everywhere he spoke, he spoke in Charlie, he spoke at Canuga, everywhere he spoke, they were usually protesters because he just hated everything about the Christian faith. But he was a bishop. He was a bishop. Um, that was more, he was more controversial in the 1990s than he is today, by the way. But he wrote this book, Born of Woman, a Bishop Rethinks the Virgin Birth and the, and the Treatment of Women by a Male-Dominated Church. Um, and, and the argument there is the old argument that, yeah, we're a male-dominated church. Christianity is a patriarchal religion. Um, so we want to keep you women down. And we've done some of that. I, we need to repent of that. We've done some of that over the years. But we want to keep you women down. And one of the ways we're able to control you women is if we can't keep you barefoot and pregnant, we, we tell you to be virgin forever. And what we've done to help that is we, 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 we make the epitome of female... Holiness, a submissive virgin who is also a mother. And particularly in womanist theology or Bishop John Shelby Spong, 
There's nothing good about those three things I just labeled. Submissive. God, let it be done to me according to your will. Usually when we preach Mary as one of the greatest disciples of Jesus, we, we can do that annunciation story where the angel comes and says, this is what God wants, and Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your will. Well, that's submissive. So um, woman's theology does not like the fact that we elevate anybody who's an example of submission to any level. They don't like the fact that we, um, you know, that they say you women should be real offended that your um, icon of holiness is a virgin because most of you failed that test. Um, and then they really don't like the concept of motherhood. Um, a lot of the really radical women's theologians uh, I'm not saying women theologians, I'm saying womanist, womanist theologians, have written that, that motherhood is one of the things that's kept, motherhood and marriage, those things have kept women, that's how we've controlled you women. So all of that comes to bear, and that you may agree with some of that, all of that, none of that. You know, I'm, I'm not here to, we, we take a whole session on womanist theology. And, you know, because this has given us some gifts, but in other ways, it's, there's, it's from the devil in some ways, but it's given us some gifts. Um, but all of those have led to, again, another reason why the whole concept of, um, uh, of the virgin birth has fallen on whole, hard times. That's why the more progressive a Christian becomes in their theology, and I, I don't like that word, by the way, I hate that word, because of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says if you're, if you're heading in the wrong direction, the most progressive thing you can do is turn around and go the other way. So, you know, just because you're weird or radical or different or unusual, yeah, I don't call that progressive. Um, anyway, I hate labels, but it helps us to have a conversation. But, yeah, the more progressive you come, the more progressive you become theologically. Um, like if you go Google progressivechristianity.org, um, yeah, go there and, and see what you can find on the virgin birth. All of that, all of the, there's lot, everything from scientism to radical feminism uh, and other things have, have, have made the virgin birth fall on hard times. So again, those, those 25%, and again, you can do what you want to with studies, but the 25% of, of clergy in the West that don't accept virgin birth, it's not that they haven't read this, they know it's there. They know they read the creeds, they probably, some of them use the creeds on Sunday morning, but they personally reject it for some of the reasons I'm, I'm sharing. Um, obviously, you know, I'm not in their camp. I, I joyfully accept the virgin birth as core Christian theology. Um, anyway, so now when somebody tells you why they just have a hard time. I had one candidate before me one time when I was on the board of ministry. And I happened to know her real well, so she probably hated I was on the board of ministry. Because she knew that I knew that she didn't believe in the virgin birth. And she came before us, and uh, that topic came up. And um, she gave us all her reasons why she didn't accept the virgin birth. I had her give me all of the reasons why the historic church does. And she did a decent job of that. She, she had rejected all of that I've said about why we've accepted the virgin birth. But she had come to a different conclusion. She had come to a different conclusion. Which, by the way, I always respected her because one of the things she chose to do was never pastor a local congregation. I, re I respected her for that. Anyway, that's probably enough for you to think about today. Um, again, I'm still five minutes over. I 
like that. Uh, I owe you 10 minutes now, uh, as of yesterday and the day before. So, um, tomorrow, heaven and hell. And then, uh, probably more about hell tomorrow. I don't. Heaven's not a hard sell. Hell's a hard sell. Um, and then we'll talk about marriage and concepts of marriage on Thursday. Go in peace. Uh, share the peace of Christ. Get to know each other. Make sure you know the folks in the room.